Amen. All right, have a seat if you would. Again, welcome. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter uh, 10 today as we continue in a series we started last week called Reset. I read a story one time uh, about a, a school in Texas. This was several decades ago, sometime in the 1900s, but a school in, in a little community in Texas that had a fire in it, and it burned down. And when they rebuilt uh, the school, they installed a sprinkler system in the school, which this would have been, I guess, early on in that kind of technology. And so, uh, you know, they were really proud that they were able to, uh, you know, put a uh, sprinkler system in their school in this small little town. And of course, you know, they felt safer and, and, and less worried uh, about having a fire, you know, since they had, uh, you know, had one before. Because once you have a fire, like, you know, we had a fire at True Life like eight years ago. And I'm like, don't even joke about fire at, at True Life, you know, like no real candles, anything like that, even though, you know, nothing like that actually caused the fire. It's just, you know, once you've had it, it's like, that, that could really happen. We don't want this to happen again. But, you know, they felt like they had uh, done what they could to address the problem and that, uh, you know, hopefully if they ever had a fire, the sprinklers would take care of it, wouldn't get really bad again so that everything would be okay. And then at some point, for some reason, they had some kind of outside consultant come in and do an inspection uh, of the school. But what the consultant discovered when he was doing the inspection was, yes, the sprinkler system had been installed but it had never actually been connected to the water source. So if, if they would have had a fire, it would not have worked. And they were all shocked and obviously uh, they were thankful that they hadn't had a fire. But could you imagine how awful that would be thinking you had done this and then finding out that uh, by having a fire that there's actually no connection, there's no water, that, that would be horrible. But I'm going to tell you about something that would be worse. There's going to be a lot of people on the day of judgment who think that they're connected to God, that everything's good, that they have a relationship with God. And they're going to stand before him and find out they never really were connected to him. Because Jesus says that he's going to say to some people, depart from me, I never knew you. And so... Today, as we talk about connection, I just want to you know, ask you, encourage you to make sure, are you connected to God? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you know that you know Him? Do you know that you're going to heaven? Let me just follow that up with another question, and we'll circle back to this. And, and I think it's a, this is a really important question because I think it can... It's the kind of question that can reveal what we're trusting in. That is, if you were standing before God right now, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? If you were standing before God right now, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? And if you're formulating an answer in your mind, and I hope you are, but that answer reveals what you're trusting in, what you're relying on for your salvation. And actually, biblically, that answer will reveal whether or not you're actually connected to God or not. So, 
Are you connected? Are you ready to meet God? If you say you are, are you experiencing the presence of God in your life? Are you living your life full of hope and, and spiritual confidence? Or uh, you just full of fear and anxiety or maybe even hopelessness in regard to the circumstances of your life? And maybe switching gears a little bit, and we're going to cover these things in, in this passage. You know, God created us not just for a vertical connection with Him, but a horizontal connection with each other. That's what the New Testament teaches us, really, that Christianity is. It's a vertical connection with God. It's a horizontal connection to each other as the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Is Are you connected to other believers? Are, are you in relationship with believers, with other Christians, where you're giving ministry, receiving ministry, where you're helping each other through life? So, I hope that will kind of get us thinking as we look at Hebrews chapter 10. And so what we're going to do is really our focus is verses 19 through 25. But before we get there, we kind of need to lay the foundation because verse 19 starts with a therefore. And when you see a therefore, basically what, what it's indicating is I'm about to tell you something. I'm about to call you to do something based on truth that I've already given you. And so really what Hebrews uh, 10, 19 through 25 is, is, is there's really three invitations there from the Lord, three verbs that kind of direct uh, the, the passage where he says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another. But we have to understand what that's being based on. And what it's being based on is really who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let, let's start reading in Hebrews chapter 10 and just spend a few minutes just kind of laying this foundation and then we'll look at, at that main uh, part of the text. So the writer of Hebrews, who my theory is Paul, you can have your own theory, I wouldn't argue with you about it, but that's my opinion, uh, says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if, if those Old Covenant, Old Testament sacrifices, uh, bulls and goats and lambs, actually brought about the forgiveness of sins, why did they keep doing them? But then you say, well, when, what would be the purpose? We'll, we'll get there. But he says, for then they, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So what he's saying to us right up front here is that these old covenant sacrifices cannot forgive sin. And, of course, you may say, well, that's a little hard for me to relate to. You know, it's not like we're cutting up a bull or a goat and offering it on the, uh, on the altar every Sunday morning. So how does this uh, apply to me? I, I would say how it would relate to us today is just this idea that we can't earn the forgiveness of our sins through our own religious efforts. So then that would lead to the question of, well, how are we then forgiven uh, of our sins? Well, look at verse 5. He says, therefore, when he came into the world... Talking about Jesus and quoting from the Old Testament, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And so 
In other words, what the Jews had done is they had kind of gotten to the place of thinking that salvation was in a religious system. That through these outward rituals and their own effort, that they could be made right with God. But what they did was they missed Jesus in the middle of their religious system. And that's what tons of people do today. We miss Jesus, we miss salvation, we miss the Messiah in our religious system. Because salvation is not in a system, salvation is not in a ritual, salvation is in a person. So he says, I've come to do your will, O God. And he goes on to say, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not uh, desire... Uh, nor have pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And so, what is the will of God? So, when you put all of these verses uh, together, I think, when you go back to verse 1 and kind of bookend it here with verse 9, everything in between, what it's saying is that the old covenant sacrifices were a shadow, but the sacrifice of Jesus is the actual substance of God's plan. The Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow, but the sacrifice of Jesus was the actual substance of God's plan. You see, everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards the coming of Christ. There's pictures, there's types. The sacrificial system, why were they offering up lambs if they didn't actually bring about the forgiveness of sins? It's a picture that the Messiah was going to come day, someday as the spotless, perfect Lamb of God who was going to be the once-for-all sacrifice that actually took care of sins. There's prophecies in the Old Testament about this. There's Isaiah chapter 53. The actual substance is Jesus. And so here's the thing. People think, well, you know, does this mean we need to get away from the Old Testament? Absolutely not. But we need to put the Old Testament in its proper place. And this is the proper place as a shadow pointing to the coming substance. Listen, the Old Testament is perfect. It's just It was never designed to bring salvation through the law or through the sacrificial system. The law was given to show us our need for the Savior. The sacrificial system was given to point us to this coming Savior. It fulfilled that purpose in in a perfect way. It's just So there's no problem with the Old Testament. The only problem with the Old Testament is when we go back to these things, to law and and religious ritual and, and, and a system to try to find salvation instead of finding salvation in the substance of God's plan, Jesus who came to be our once for all sacrifice. Think of it this way. Maybe this is a silly analogy, but hopefully it makes the point. So, you know, sometimes when you're standing outside on a sunny day that like, um, and, and you're kind of standing in front of a building that the, the sun and the building will kind of converge to cast your shadow on the building. You know what I'm talking about? So 
just imagine, let's say the next time I go on a trip to Honduras and I've been away a week, week and a half, and Robin comes to pick me up at the airport, but instead of coming uh, into uh, the airport, she decides to pick me up outside the airport, and she's standing there, and, and so she's standing there, but then her shadow is cast on the side of the building as well. And let's see, I, I see her, and I'm all excited to see her, and I go running towards her, looking like I'm going to embrace her, and I run right past her, and I embrace and kiss her shadow. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd think I had some serious issues, right? I mean, that would be a pretty messed up kind of thing. But do you understand when we're trusting in any kind of religious system, even the Old Testament law or sacrificial system instead of Jesus, it's like kissing the, the shadow instead of embracing the substance, the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to us in the book of Hebrews. He's saying move from the shadow to the substance. And so he goes on here uh, to, to say at the end of verse 9, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. He's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. And he goes on in verse 15 to, to amplify that. He says the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said uh, before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. It's not external, it's internal. He says, then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Why? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And so what he's saying is the sacrifice of Jesus rendered obsolete the old covenant and established the new covenant. In other words, again, the Old Testament is perfect. We don't unhitch ourselves uh, from the Old Testament. It's, it's the foundation, but it's just the shadow. The substance is Christ. The old covenant is obsolete. You don't need to approach God on the basis of an animal sacrifice. You can approach God on the basis of the cross. You don't need to approach God through a priest. You approach God through Jesus who is your high priest. You don't need to go to the temple or the tabernacle to worship God because you know Jesus who is the tabernacle, the temple, the very presence of God in, in, in our lives. It's all uh, about Jesus. And so, you know, don't go back to the Old Testament of, you know, the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was, you know, there were blessings for obedience, curse for disobedience. A lot of people are still stuck in the Old Covenant. The problem with that is none of us have been obedient, so we're all under the curse. But thank God, Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. That's why we need Jesus. The Old Covenant's obsolete. Live in the New Covenant. It's like somebody in 2021, instead of having a, far, a smartphone, having a, a bag phone. I, I mean, that, that's what it's like trying to live based on the old if Kids, ask your parents what a bag phone is. Um, some of you parents may need to ask your parents what a, what a, what a bag phone is, if you're like under 40 maybe. But, um, so the old covenant's obsolete. He's established the new covenant. And then... Let's go back to verses 10 through 14. He says, By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. That's a lot of the emphasis of the book of Hebrews. Once for all. You don't need to have a priest offer a sacrifice. Why? 
Because once for all, the finished work of Christ, Jesus paid all the debt for our sins on the cross. He, he says every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Do you understand that in the sight of God, spiritually speaking, in Christ, you're perfected forever. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ accomplished. Why would we trust in anything, anyone else? That's the gospel. That's grace. That's what Jesus has done for us, that he became all of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became our sin. He took our place. The wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on him. So when we trust him, we're forgiven. And all that, we're delivered from all that. Therefore, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. Listen, God is holy. There can't be sin in heaven or it wouldn't be heaven. It would be all messed up like the earth is. There's only two ways to get to heaven. You can be perfect or you can be perfected forever by the blood of Jesus. And since nobody's perfect, that only leaves one way. And he's going to develop that. So Jesus is the once for all perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that was accepted that brings forgiveness of our sin. One of the most famous missionaries in the history of the Christian church is a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. Uh, founded China Inland Mission. And you know, several church historians have written about him. But he was raised in a Christian home. And, uh, but as a teenager, he wasn't a Christian. I mean, he said there were times that he had tried to give himself to God, but it just didn't seem like it had happened. And maybe some of you have experienced that because, you know, there, there's a time. There's a, you know, it takes the working of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, he began to... Uh, kind of, you know, walk away from his upbringing. He was working with some people who weren't believers, who were skeptics, and he kind of began to listen to them and, um, you know, began to question the Bible and, uh, you know, all these kind of things, began to talk about Christians being hypocrites and, and, and all this kind of thing. But at 17, he had an experience where God transformed his life. And, and what happened was he was uh, off work, uh, he was home, and he was bored. And so, uh, you know, today that happens. What's teenager going to do? Turn on TV, YouTube videos, Snapchat, TikTok. We got so many options. He didn't have those options. Uh, so he went into his father's library and just looking for trying to find something interesting to read. And um, he found a gospel tract that had an interesting story in it that kind of hooked him in. But as he was reading it, um, it kept talking about, kept using this phrase, the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. And, and he asked himself the question, what is finished? 
And, uh, you know, he, he'd been raised in a Christian home. He'd been taught the Bible. And so he, he knew the answer. But the reality is, you know, we can know the answer in our head, but there has to come a time where God, uh, you know, quickens our heart, where God does a work of regeneration, where, uh, you know, something just happens on the inside of us, and it moves from our head to our heart, and we actually trust Christ. And in that moment, that's what had happened, because he, he says the answer came to him in this. What is finished? A full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for sin. The debt was paid by the substitute. Christ died for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so in that moment is somehow, you know, that just hit him. And again, it moved from just being head knowledge to his heart. It says it then flooded in the joyous conviction that if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, all that was left for him to do was to accept it. And so he fell on his knees, began praising God, because if we're really saved, we're going to work worship Jesus because we know that the only way that we are saved is through what he has done for us. We, we do what scripture says. We boast in the cross. We glory in Jesus Christ, knowing there is nothing that we can contribute to our own salvation. You know, because what the cross tells us is that we are so bad, it took the Son of God dying for us in order to, for us to be saved. But at the same time, we are so loved that the Son of God chose to die for us in order for us to be saved. That's the gospel. And so, just to kind of circle back to the question at the beginning, you were standing before God, and He asked, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And the reality is, if the answer is anything other than or in addition to Jesus, you're not actually connected to God. And, and I think the reality is that most people, I mean, they think Jesus has something to do with it, but it's Jesus and me in some way. You know, Jesus, and I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I know Jesus died on the cross, but I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done this or that, or I have done this or that, or I've done this stuff, or I'm a member of a church, or I've been baptized, or I take communion, or I go through whatever uh, religious ritual that's in your religious tradition. And the reality is that Jesus is the once-for-all uh, sacrifice, and because he's the once-for-all sacrifice, salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And if there's any plus in there, if it's Jesus plus anything, we are missing the whole thing because the Bible says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen, if there's any works, there's no grace because if there's any works, we're relying on ourselves and not the grace and the mercy of God, not the finished work of Christ on the cross. Do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough? Are you resting in, trusting in Christ alone? And so he lays that foundation, and then he comes to verse 19, and he says this to us, Therefore, brethren, having boldness 
to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house uh, of God. And so uh, the idea would be here, stop trying to connect to God through our religious efforts and connect him through Jesus and Jesus alone. What he's saying here is we come into the presence of God, we come into a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, but Jesus is both our sacrifice who died for us on the cross, and now he's our high priest who's interceding for us before the Father, ministering on our behalf. He's both. It's all Jesus. The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Are you connected? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Uh, look at verse 20. He says, he calls it a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Kenneth Wiest, who's a Greek scholar, gives a literal translation of this verse, and he, he translates it this way. He says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness for the entering of the holiness, the presence of God, by means of the blood of Jesus, which he inaugurated for us, a road, a freshly slain one, a living one. So what's the pathway into the presence of God? What, the, what this is saying is it's only through the cross. Only in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only through the blood of Jesus can our sins be atoned for. That is the only way we can come to God. So why try to go any other way? I mean, this is the gospel. God is our creator. We're made in his image. And in being made in, in, in his image, we have the ability to make choices. But Adam and Eve, they chose to sin. They rejected uh, God. And, you know, ever since then, we've been born dead in trespasses and sins. So while in one sense we may make choices, spiritually our will is in bondage to sin. We all, because we're sinners by nature, choose to actually sin. And we sin many times and in many ways uh, in, 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 in our lives. Uh, sin is more than just things we do. It's the disposition of our heart. Uh, it being in rebellion against God. R.C. Sproul calls sin cosmic treason. It's basically us saying... You know, I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. God, I, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what we do when we sin, if we're really honest about it. We, we, we say, I know this is what's right, or God, I know this is what you want, but this is what I want to do in this moment. And we choose to do that. The Bible says there's sin separated us from God. It says the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to be in hell. And again, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. The Bible says that our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We have nothing to offer a holy God. Everything we do is tainted by sin in some sense. Apart from Christ, it's about self. Even when we do good things, it's for our glory and not for the glory of God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus Christ, uh, the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, came a a as a man, as a genuine human being. He lived the perfect sinless life 
life that we fail to live. And he died on the cross in our place as our substitute, bearing our, our, our sins and rising from the dead. And when we trust in him and in, in, in him alone, what happens is our sin is exchanged for his righteousness. We're forgiven. We're made new. We're made children of God. But it only comes when we repent of our sins, when we're confronted and we admit our sinfulness uh, before a holy God. And we know that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And we come to the end of ourselves and we turn to Christ and we're trusting in him and him alone, resting in, relying on his finished work, uh, what he has done for us and not trying to contribute anything to it ourselves. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? What are you relying on? If you were standing before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Are you connected to God? If you're not, if you're not sure, my encouragement to be, would be for you to settle that. If God is, is dealing with your heart, dealing with your sin, and he's, you have the faith uh, to trust in Jesus, not just some head knowledge about oh, Jesus died on the cross, but if you have the faith to rely on Him and Him alone for your salvation. I just encourage you to tune me out, listen to God, and respond to Him. Call on the name of Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to come into your life. Take control of your life. Commit your life uh, to Him. But then, if you are a Christian, if you are connected to God, let's look at these three um, invitations that he gives us here in verses 22 through 25. Number one, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. I mean, think about it. It's kind of like, um, I mean, if you got an invitation in the mail this week, I mean, what would be an exciting thing for you to get invited to? I mean, what's something that would be cool that you'd like to get invited to? The Masters. So, so if you if you got a, you and Ed right if, if you got an invitation this week to the Masters like a couple of tickets to the Masters that'd be pretty awesome right? Somebody else would be cool to get invited to. Okay, birthday party for somebody you love. I mean, whatever it may be, it'd be a sporting event, concert, friend's house. Watching a taping of a TV show that you really like. I don't know what it may be. But this is like an invitation from the God of the universe to draw near to me. It's like, come spend time with me. Come and connect with me. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's like, come into my presence Come and talk to me. Come and share your heart with me. Come and worship me. Come and confess your sins to me. And he's saying, again, you don't have to go through a certain building. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a ritual. The way is made open into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest could go there once a year. We can come anytime. Through Jesus. That's his invitation. He says, draw near. How often do we take advantage of that invitation? Or do we just kind of walk through our lives on our own? We may say we're saved, but living like we're disconnected with God because we don't spend any time drawing near to him. 
So individually, daily, we can draw near to God. Again, when we come together as a church, this should be the idea. Is again, not just to come, you know, I've done my duty, I've come to church, I've heard a sermon, I've sung some songs. But no, we're actually drawing near together in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Second, he says in verse 23, though, he invites us to hold fast the confession of our hope. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. You ever feel hopeless, discouraged, overwhelmed by circumstances? Just feel like you're wavering, unsteady, unsure as far as whether or not you have hope, as far as whether or not you believe? Well, what he's saying to us here is that our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 19 and 20, he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. If you're wavering, what do you need? If, if the storms of life are tossing you on the sea of life, what do you need? You need an anchor to solidify you. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. Jesus is our hope. We all want hope. But you know what a part of our problem is? We don't really understand hope, at least in the biblical sense. There's a couple of different ways we can look at hope. There's the biblical view of it, and there's just kind of the normal, worldly, everyday view of hope. And here's what I mean. Okay, I can say this. I can say, I hope that the UT football team goes undefeated and wins the national championship this year. I, could, I mean, I could say that. I hope that happens. I'm saying that, though, with zero confidence. <laughs> right? I, I'm saying this, and it sounds like a delusional statement to even say it. So what I'm expressing in saying I hope this happens is a desire. That makes sense? I can say I hope that COVID disappears tomorrow. <laughs> and I really hope it does. That's a desire. But I, I don't have any real expectation that there's going to be zero COVID cases in the world when we make, wake up in the morning. It's a desire. It's a hope so kind of. I, I mean, I could say, you know, I hope somebody gives me a million dollars tomorrow. I'm not saying that with any confidence, though. It might be a desire. It's not an expectation. Biblical hope is different than that, though. Biblical hope is a confidence it's, it's a surety, it's a certainty, it's not a subjective feeling, that's what I expressed before, it's an objective reality, it's something we possess, why? Because he who promised is faithful, what's he faithful to? He's faithful to the covenant, the new covenant that he made with us in Jesus Christ that he purchased with his own blood on the cross, that is our hope, that is our confidence. Listen, if our hope is in our circumstances, how are we ever really going to have hope? Because sometimes our circumstances are going to be good, sometimes they're going to be bad, but the reality is, even if we have an awesome, blessed, uh, rosy kind of life, at some point, it's going to go bad. At some point, actually, we're going to die. And if we don't have a hope that transcends the grave, we really don't have any hope. So the reality is, if your hope is in your circumstances... You have the first kind of hope. You have a desire. 
But what happens if your desire is not met and things don't go like you want them to go? You don't really have any hope. But if your hope is in the promise and the covenant of God, sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ, ratified by Him rising from the dead, and knowing because He lives, we're going to live also. And so we have a hope in facing death, and we have a purpose in living life. doesn't mean life's always going to be rosy, but it means we have a hope that transcends the circumstances around us, and that's real hope. So He says, draw near. But He says, hold fast. But then last thing is he kind of switches from the vertical to the horizontal. And he says, consider one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, and let us consider one another. And there's dozens of these one another commands in the New Testament that explain how we're to to relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. The word consider speaks of attentive, continuous care. The exhortation is to take careful note of each other's spiritual welfare. So, in a family, people look after each other, right? What he's saying here is in the family of God, people look after each other. We consider one another. We don't don't just think about ourselves. We think about each other. We need each other. You know, part of the reason why you need to be at church is because somebody needs you. There's some way you can minister to somebody. It's not just what we get, it's what we give. In fact, Warren Wearsby says about these verses, it's interesting to note that the emphasis here is on not what a believer gets from the assembly, but rather on what he can contribute to the assembly. But the reality is, is in ministering to others, we receive in return. Now, not always. Sometimes people will treat you wrong and... Sometimes things don't go the way they should. They should. Listen, people don't stop being sinners when they walk into a church. But the reality is, each of us have a personal responsibility to obey the command of God. He says we're to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. He says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're together in worship. Uh, you know, we're together. You know, we believe you know, the book of Acts pictures uh, you know, large group worship. And then, and then small groups, people living life uh, uh, together because, you know, it's, it's hard to exhort and encourage and love and pray for one another in, in, in a worship service. But in a small group, you can pray for each other, encourage each other, be there for each other, do life together. To exhort one another, to encourage one another, sometimes challenge each other, to have mutual accountability. This is what it means to live as the family of God. We need each other. God did not design us to do life alone. Satan wants to isolate us because we're kind of easy prey for the roaring lion that he is when we're on our own. But together, together we're strong. Listen, I know COVID presents challenges to this, but the reality is it means we need each other more. 
I mean, I can't imagine walking through COVID and Robin, Robin having cancer without brothers and sisters in Christ, without friends, without our small group walking alongside of us and being there to support us. We need each other. And so part of my encouragement for you out of this is like, how are you going to obey these one another commands? Are you in a relationship with other believers? Some of you need to get plugged into a small group, and we can help you to do that so you can have this kind of relationship, so you can grow together. Some of you, it's a matter, you know, God's given every believer spiritual gifts, and he's called, commanded us to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, and we all need each other. And if you're not doing what God's called you to do, somebody's missing out. This body can't be everything that God's called it to be. And, uh, you know, some people are going to try to do too much, and it's going to put strain on them. We all need each other. We all have a place. And there's just something about when you're actually an active participant as as opposed to being a spectator that it just transforms our spiritual lives. We need each other. So I'd encourage you, if you're not plugged into a small group, plug into a small group. I'd encourage you, you know, if you're newer, we're having a picnic, uh, kind of our annual church picnic. We didn't do it last year. We're going to do it the last Sunday uh, of August out at White Pine Park. It's a great way for you to meet people. That might be a simple little step uh, for, for some of you uh, to take. But just to kind of tie all this together, it's all about Jesus. It's all Jesus. Are you connected to God through him? Are you trusting in him and him alone? If not, trust him today. If you say you are, are you drawing near to him? Is your hope in him? And then remember, it's not just us and Jesus. It's Jesus and us. It's vertical. It's horizontal. Are you connected to other believers, giving ministry, receiving ministry, living life together? That is the New Testament model. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, uh, you can't just do it on your own and be in the will of God. You'd have to rip out uh, hundreds of pages of your New Testament to try to live that way. So I just encourage you, if you're not a Christian, give your life to Christ. If if you are, take the step that he's leading you to take uh, today. So if we could, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And